0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews. This is our first in a series of Skype interviews where we'll be posting the video of our interview on our YouTube page. In this episode, done in late March of this year, Al Miller connected with the multi-talented Shep Huntley. Shep talks about getting his start by taking an acting course and realizing that circus arts was the path for him. He talks about meeting Lucky Rich who became his mentor and inspiration, bringing Shep with him to Europe for the first time. Shep also tells Al about doing a dub act with Anthony Living Space, how he created the happy sideshow at Shane and Frodo, and doing his silent stage show, The Dark Party. Amongst all of this, Shep squeezed in a ton of great stories from his 30 year career as a performer. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did.
1: What day, what's the day today? It's, uh, it's March 25th in Boston. What time? What yes. It's the next day there.
2: No, it's still 25th here. So it's still the 25th. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And where are you, mate? So we're on the same day. I'm at uh, Byron Bay. Nice one. Beautiful. Yeah. It's so weird to be going into social isolation, but still be able to go to the most beautiful beaches in the world. I know,
1: right? I'm jealous.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. I I I went to a waterfall in a rainforest, just with no one else. Yeah. Like, and we're supposed to be in lockdown. It's it's sort of weird and beautiful, yes,
1: strange. It's, uh, it's back to nature, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm putting my gardens in, like garden beds, you know, onions, carrots, potatoes, all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. There yeah. right. Who knows how long this is, is going to last, you know?
2: No, we don't know. Mm-hmm. That's why we need more podcasts. So thanks for doing it. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Well, you, you probably got tons of uh, great stories, and you know you were definitely uh, one of my. You were one of my early uh, inspirations, and and uh, helped me out in the beginning. So, uh, yeah, this yep. is this is awesome. Uh, have you had like a lot of cancellations, or are you? Uh... Every
2: everything, Al fucking yeah. every everything. Like, yeah, there's nothing. Like, I was so looking forward to going to Glastonbury.
1: Mm, yeah. Right. But that's huge. Every,
2: everything up till July is gone. And I only booked six months in advance, so I've got nothing, <laughs> you know, just nothing.
1: Yeah. How did uh, street theatre start for Shep Huntley? Like, did you, like, go to circus school or learn something in, in high school or how did, it, how did it happen?
2: Well, I know the date of the start of it because <laughs> – I was trying to think of dates earlier going, fuck, it's it's all just so confusing. But in 1987,
0: mm.
2: I, I went to a um, acting course. I wanted to be an actor. And right. in the, and in the um, acting course, first year acting course, um, a guy came along and he taught us all to juggle and he taught us all to walk on stilts. And from sort of like that day, I just went, I don't want to be an actor anymore. I want to be a juggler and a circus guy and I just want to be into all that. And so it was only a few months after that, that I just dropped out of this university and, and moved in with the guy who was the juggling teacher and (laughs) then just, and then just practiced every day, just, um, just doing heaps of passing patterns, learned to ride a unicycle, learned to juggle. Um, it was way before the internet, but we, um, we bought a Diablo from a mail order thing, right. and it came and it came from uh, Dubai in New York right to on. to Ballarat. <clears throat> came in a box. We got it out of the box. We didn't even know how to use it. Just there was one book. It was called The Complete Juggler. We had that. We had said we had to learn out of that how to use the Diablo. Yeah. And then the only, only trick we could do was sort of throwing it. Over, over the house, we used to throw it from one side of the house to the other side of the house. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and he was in a group, a uh, sort of musicians group that did some juggling in their shows. And then and then me and him and another guy started a three-person juggling circus thing. We used to do shows at schools and stuff. Wow. And then we get show, we get shows at um, at sort of outdoor festivals. So we'd be doing shows on the street, um, but getting a fee for it. And then, uh, and that was for a couple of years. And then in 1990, Melbourne city council ran a buskers festival and, uh, yeah. And it was a buskers sort of championship thing was a big deal at the time. And so we went down there, the three of us went down there Mm. and, and, uh, Lucky Rich was there. There was a guy called Jeff Bradley there from um, somewhere know. from – he, he was a great Diablo guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Petra Massey, she actually won it. You know, she's in Spy Monkey now. Yeah, um, yeah so we went down.
1: What we did the show look like at that point?
2: The show was – it was set up as a race. How many tricks can we do in 30 minutes? <laughs> and we'd and we'd set all the props out, and start off with the juggling balls, and move on to the clubs, and then move on to the I don't know. We used to skip skip a burning a burning rope on the unicycle, do oh, um, do a, do a few little great. acro tricks, finish off in a um, sort of like a three person pyramid, all blowing fire at the same time. Right, right. Um, so it used to be as many tricks as we could do in thirty minutes. And then we we're just watching all the other acts going, they're going really slow. They're taking some real time about this. They're only doing like one or two things in the whole 40 minute slot.
1: Like, jeez. Yeah. Oh, no. Strict um, structure.
2: Yeah. And then a little bit after that, a few months after that, the Port Fairy Folk Festival was on. Mm. And, uh, and I was there with the other two guys. We were doing shows there, um, just busking shows. It was sort of before everybody had seen street shows, so you didn't have to be that good to get big crowds. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, <laughs> we were making really good coin. And then Lucky Rich was there, and he said to me, come with me, man, come with me, come, come on. And he took me away sort of out of the centre pitch area and down the street a little bit, and he went, just sit there. And then he goes, this one's for you. And then... <laughs> And then he just said, you three guys, there's three young guys walking past. He goes, you three guys, you're going to be the front row of my show. You need to, st- you need to stand right there. And they just stopped and stood there.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, and then he built a massive show around those three guys, absolutely massive. And then at the end, he goes, that's how you do it. That one's for you. Um, and then he kept all the money, but he was actually just showing me <laughs> He was just showing me how, how to do the show, you know how to how to really structure it properly. And so after that, I just had the bug. And there was a point where uh, we were in a three-man troop. One of them left so that he could concentrate on rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And then then I was in a double act for another year or two. And there was one point where in the double act, my mate he just didn't make it. Either the car broke, the car broke down or something happened and he couldn't get to the gig, so okay. I had to do, yeah I had to do the gig by myself and uh, I remember it clearly it's on a big wide street in Ballarat and I just nailed it you know I just nailed it like at one point I went I went into in the suitcase to get the next props out my internal monologue went oh where's Terry Is he where's Terry now fuck he's not here they're all here for me this is awesome <laughs> And uh, at, at the end counting the wedge and not having to split it up
1: yeah
2: from then on i was like no, no turn it back. No back i can do this and i was a bit scared um to do it my solo show in ballarat or even melbourne so i used to drive up to sydney really yeah and wow. i and i said sort of Cut my teeth at Circular Key there much more than cutting my teeth in, at the Melbourne pitches. Mm. And so by the time I got to those Melbourne pitches, I felt like I had a decent show.
1: It was, uh, who was working in Sydney when you started working there? Um,
2: I distinctly remember Herbie Treehead. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, JP was there for sure. Brett was there. Damien was there gareth from the Pitt family oh, he was no. like
1: yeah, he no, was like
2: cool. he was like a 14 year old kid um jumping through a ring of fire <laughs> um and then i used to go back to sydney quite regularly after that um I remember so meeting
1: a uh, solo show what did that look like was it still the, the race kind of thing or what
2: Nah. um i just thought well i was in in melbourne i was going right well, Lucky does the tall unicycle and Hotch does the flying. Mm-hmm. Living Space does all that weird mime stuff. What's a prop that people aren't using? And I just went, oh, better nails. No one's using that. All right. So I made myself one of those. And my first solo shows were pretty much this. It's, oh, the structure of the show stayed the same forever, really. Yeah. Build a crowd put a kid on the shoulders, get a woman out. You know, isn't it funny? It takes bloody 20 seconds to say it, but 50 minutes to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Build a crowd, get a kid out, put the kid on the shoulders, get a woman out, do all the stuff, and then get her to drop the bowling ball on my stomach. Right. While I was on the thing. And if you choose, oh, at the start, it was with um, roofing tiles. Mm. We used to do roofing tiles,
1: yeah, right. Um, but, the first time,
2: yeah, yeah, but the first time I went to Amsterdam, there was no roofing tiles there, and suddenly I had to go, Oh my god, how do I solve this? And uh, and that's when dinner plates, cheap dinner plates from op shops, that just became mm. a thing. I became that's a plate
1: at a time.
2: Oh, it depends, like 10, 15, 20, depends, as many as I could carry, really. <laughs> To a show. So if there's a lot of op shops around, then you're okay. You can just as many as you want. Doesn't matter. Um, but I became a real expert in what, how plates smash. Mm-hmm. You know, stoneware plates they just go thunk, and it's not really much of a finale. Right. But there's, these, there's these other ones. They shatter like glass, and it bounces up off your chest, and it's a big explosion. And oh. yeah. Um, acrobats never used to like following me because it was really hard to get all those tiny yeah, little slivers.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and just for you- sort of people that, uh, that haven't seen it, it's you laying on the bed of nails, someone climbs up a ladder and drops a bowling ball on your stomach where the plates are. And, uh, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a killer. It was a killer finale and it was on the ground.
2: Yeah. that I never realised at the start, how much I was sabotaging my earning potential <laughs> mm. by by actually lying down. But what I got really good at was um was bobbing down a lot through the show mm-hmm. and getting the first two rows to to sit down, then the next two rows to sit down, and then the next couple of rows, and then a couple of people. And at the very end, you know, have you know on a good show, a lot of rows sitting down, and then a whole lot of people just sort of hunched. So, the people behind them could see as well. Mm-hmm. So, sort of turn it into a natural amphitheatre.
1: Yeah. Kind of good yeah.
2: Show. yeah. But I was always looking for steps that have got um, for pictures that have got good steps.
1: Yeah. Where do yeah. you find see, some good ones?
2: Burke Street was one of the best. Burke Street yeah. Post Office, for me, was really great. Um, down in St Kilda in Melbourne, too, there's a grassy bank It mm-hmm. used to be re- really good as well.
1: You, uh, what took you out of Australia? Like, how long did it did it take before you went? Oh, I got to go overseas. Yeah, right. Well, it was Lucky Rich. Lucky mm-hmm. Rich
2: was my mentor and inspiration for for quite a few years, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Burke Street, one time I remember him saying to me, "Shep, you've really got it now. What you need to do is just cut out a few more of those generic lines, yeah. make it more make it more yours." And you and you'll be really good at this. And then uh he went overseas and I just worked all all winter in Melbourne. So just that that makes you sort of tough and pitch ready, like when you work in Melbourne winter. And uh and I was doing St. Kilda one day and then Lucky was there at the end when I was collecting all the money, Lucky was there, and he goes Shep, I watched that from the back. You've got it now, man. Next time I go to London, I'm taking you with me. And so, um, and so, a few months after that, after the season, we got on a plane together, and uh, and we went to Amsterdam and London and stuff. And he sort of showed me a few pictures. And he said to me, um, he goes, we were flying over London. You could actually see some of the landmarks. We were coming into land, and he goes that's my town. Oh, I go, yeah. really? I go, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sort of said to him, I'm so nervous, like, I'm so nervous about this. And he goes, Chef, don't worry. This is how it works. He goes, there's me. And he put his hand up nice and high. <laughs> and he goes, there's me. And there's a big gap. Then there's every. Then there's a lot of other people. Then there's another yeah. big gap. And there's everybody else. And then he goes, and you will
1: fit in that first lot of people.
2: Nice. You know, like, say, like saying, you're not shit, you're going
1: to yeah. be okay. You know? Yeah. So It's kind of like how I felt about going to London years ago. I think I was talking to JP about it. I'm like, oh, I'd, you know, it'd be fun to go and work at Covent Garden, but Covent Garden's got like this reputation about being this amazing pitch. And he's like, you're better than anyone there. <laughs> I'm like, what?
2: Yeah. Like, you'll, you'll kill it. It's amazing because some of them were really good. Like there was some, just some great acts. Uh, and there was acts like Brian Reed. Oh, my acts, God.
1: Totally.
2: Just, just amazing, you know, completely left of center, weird acts that would do really well. Um, oh. Yeah, Jim, he used to say, what did he used to say? He used to go, "If I ever was, if I was ever attacked by a music stand, this is what I'd do. And then he'd have a music stand there and then he'd pick up a pair of nunchuckers and beat the shit out of the music stand with nunchuckers. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. Um, so when I got there, I realised, oh, my God, it's not even a garden. It's just a bloody square. Right. And it w- wasn't that hard to do decent shows. And this thing, everyone in London was a bit intimidated by Lucky. And, uh, and at the draw... No one would choose the show after him.
1: Right.
2: Maybe it's, it'd almost be oh, like he's going to take all the money off the pitch or something. So right. Right. it wouldn't really matter where I came out in the draw. There'd always be a show straight after Lucky. So I used to
1: just. Tiring.
2: Yeah, I know. I used to take that just thinking he's not taking all the money. He's just putting a great vibe onto the street. And you can walk yeah. on and just sort of use that vibe. Yeah. So they always used to be a bit scared of him. They'd leave me a little slot that I could just take,
1: which was great. You once yeah. told me a story about the Punch and Judy when, when Richie was on.
2: They used to chant. They used to go, nobody does it like Richie. <laughs> so you got like three or 400 drunk people up on the balcony all chanting that when you're trying to start your show. <laughs> I can't remember what I told you about it, but uh, it was, was pretty, pretty intense. Pretty much intimidating at times,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But we went to Amsterdam first. So the first year, the first pitches that I worked outside Australia were the lights are playing. Mm-hmm. That, and that was fine. Oh, I loved it because it just had mad people. And there was a nude guy on uh, rollerblades that just used to slide through your show and slide out again. And you just have to you can't just hold the form of your show, you just gotta go with what's going on. Like yeah. It was, it was pretty mental and it was a pretty steep learning curve, but it also let me know what an amazing world it was. Like I met people like love 22, you know, he used to look like, um, Colonel Sanders yeah. and he used to, he used to hand out these $22 bills and then tell you all this I mean, sort well, of Illuminati stuff about yeah. everything adds up to 22. Um, yeah you know, and Cellini and Tom Picard and all those old table magic guys and just, you know, see people work in the terraces and just go, oh, wow, like this is a big tradition and a big world that I've entered here. Mm -hmm. And it really opened my eyes. And, uh, yeah, I feel really lucky just to be part of all that for so long. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that was probably
2: early 90s, right? I think – 95 or 96, mm-hmm. by the time I got there. But what I do know for certain is that's where I met
1: the Space Cowboy. Yeah, in Amsterdam.
2: Yeah, we never met in Australia. We were always just like we knew of each other yeah. because we were on the same circuits, but we never actually met each other until we were in Amsterdam. And then it's like, oh, you're the Space Cowboy, you're Shep Henley. and we suddenly just hit it off. Became great mates. Yeah. And I, I remember going. Sometimes we used to stay in his van just because it was easier than – and what we used to do, just park the van on the pitch. And yeah. every every day we'd get a fine. It's like, I don't know, 30 guilders or something like that. Yeah. And it was just way cheaper than getting a hostel or a hotel or a room or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pay the traffic <laughs> fine. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, wake up, take the fine off the window, go around the place and pay it, and then just do shows, yeah. sit in the cafes, and then pay the fine again the next day. That's great. Yeah, it was a good little loophole.
1: And did so, yeah, you no, Amsterdam for pictures, or did you just stay on the uh, lights of plane? You couldn't work damn
2: square at that point for some reason. All right. But you just have to line up. Bert was there, you know, the guy used to juggle the two, no, balance the two bikes. Balance the bikes, yeah, 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 Yeah. bike Bert. Yeah, bike Bert and uh, Frank, Marty, yeah, all those
1: old school geezers were there. Yeah, for real. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, And then you went to London.
2: Yeah, and then worked that whole summer. And then everyone was talking about Edinburgh. I mean, that's where I met Pep. I met Pep in Covent Garden, but, Everyone was talking about Edinburgh. And that first year I went there, it was probably 95 or 96. Um, yeah, it was, it was really special. Like Dave McSavage was there. Rumpel
1: was there. All these people. And I don't it know what you... attracts you're... everyone, doesn't it? Hey? Huh? It just attracts everyone. Yeah, yeah.
2: There was this... When I was thinking of things to tell you, I was going, oh, my God. So there was this year in Edinburgh. It was part of the free for all, I think, mm-hmm. before the before the Fringe took over. So we used to have the High Street. We'd sit at the Royal Mile, that pub in the middle there, and uh, and just like a street mafia, we'd just dominate these pitches between about I don't know, maybe eight or ten of us. Yeah. So everyone everyone would get three shows a day, and we just sort of sit at the pub and just go, oh, he's finishing up there. You go up there, do another one. You go down there just sort of run this thing. And uh, and Dave McSavage was down in front of this little shop. The lady was always really narky, and he had a great show going on. And then suddenly there's this screaming. He's going, help, help, help. And, and it turns out the police have come in and got him and they're trying to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And... And I run down there, a few of us run down there, and he's going, help, they're trying to arrest me because I said penis. And uh, and he's going, penis, penis, I've just said penis. Whoops, I've said it again, penis. And it turns out that he goes, he said to the crowd, when they didn't clap at a gag or something, he goes, well, what do you want me to do? Set my penis on fire? And... Right. Uh, and some old lady had taken complete offence to it, and she'd gone and got the police, and and the cops were trying to drag him out of the scenario, and he wasn't happy about it, and he had yeah. his mic on, and he's screaming penis, penis into the microphone. <laughs> and, uh, and they took him away, and we um, we go to the police station, and they, and they wouldn't let him out for ages, and we were all there waiting, and then we had to leave. Then eventually they let him out, and the next day – uh, he had to go to court and so we all went to court I remember me Shane AJ probably a few others I can't remember now riff-raff. and we all went yeah full full street riffraff all just you know, <laughs> dressed up with big glasses and big shoes and yeah, 90s yeah. 90s style guys and uh and we went to the courthouse and we we're like well if our mate's going down we're gonna try and be there supporting and so everybody's piled into the courthouse and we had the front couple of rows Mm -hmm. but they don't just hear one case they hear quite a few cases in a day So, so we had to sit there through like you know somebody's parking fine and somebody else's bloody I don't know domestic violence thing or whatever and then and then they go and now it's time for uh the court versus David McSavage for uh public indecency Um, and then the guy goes and this the judge goes and this case has been dismissed without charge and folded up and put a stamp on it and uh, (laughs) and we were free to go and it really felt like we we somehow influenced the judge like we he didn't he didn't want it to come to to them, having the, the police and Dave McSavage having to tell their stories to him, right. because it was going to get out of hand, because yeah. we were going to go yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Just yeah. <laughs> and so, and so when that happened, his dad is some sort of parliament person in Ireland. Um, in Ireland, so the the press had got wind of it.
1: Right. So
2: outside the court, there was these um, all these paparazzi, press photographers, and stuff. And so we um, got we got Dave McSavage and put him up on our shoulders, <laughs> took him out of the court. And so there's this photo, it was on page two of the Times paper in London. Awesome. You know, MP's son gets off uh, public indecency. And then there's a whole heap of street performers with their arms up coming out of the courtroom like that. Wow. Yeah, it was a beautiful yeah. memory. And I haven't remembered it for years. Except for when I thought oh, I'm talking to Al. What what sort of shit can I remember to tell him?
1: Great story. Awesome. Yeah, so that was that was one of them. Yeah. Uh, where did we meet? Did I come? Did I meet you in Edinburgh? Was it in Australia? Do you remember? I'm pretty sure it was in Sydney. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. weren't doing the
2: pole, but you were doing juggling shows. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the first <laughs> the first year I went to Edinburgh was uh, '98, and um yeah I remember you kind of showing me the pictures and you know telling me how how things went here's a pitch there's a pitch you line up here and then you line up there and it was pretty and that cool. was, I had a lot
2: it was still before the um the fringe took over wasn't it ninety eight yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah so that was the, that was the, the glory days yeah it was just like a bunch of pictures up the, up the high street you know you could set up here set up there and uh, yeah have those those big crowd wars? Those were fun. Yeah, weren't they? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. We have crowds singing to each other and stuff. And yeah. sometimes I even remember, I don't know who it was, they would swap crowds.
1: Right. Did you ever, right. did you ever do that?
2: Halfway good. through the halfway through the show, you just put your shit in your case and swap with your mate. <laughs> <laughs> just finish the other person's show or finish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it was a lot of anything goes back then.
1: Yeah.
2: It wasn't so serious. And it felt like, um, you know, the wave hadn't quite broken. You know, now everything has to be so tight and so slick and mm. a lot of people, you know, queuing shit on their watches just so the music's perfect and all that. It felt like back then, you know, you could just have a bit more fun. It was a bit loose. I mean, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I saw a photo the other day of 1997 Tasmanian Circus Festival. And it brought back to me that me and Living Space used to do double acts together.
1: Really?
2: Yeah. Well, all over. Like we did them in Edinburgh. We did them in London. We did them in Australia. We did them in a lot of places. Yeah. And, um, it was at a point in his career when he was just a bit jaded with doing the same old shit all the time. You know how, how he gets sometimes. And, uh, and so, I don't know how it started, but we're just like, well, Tony still needs to make money, and we we really like hanging out together, so let's just do a show together. And he would set up his, you know, all his wires, so he'd have amplifier and then uh, sample pads like with a whole lot of gag noises in them,
1: yeah,
2: and uh, and a drum pad so he could play little like rolls and riffs and stuff, and uh, and I basically do my show. But then find as much impro stuff as I could, and um, and Tony would just add add beats and accents and and funny little music stings and stuff to it the whole time. Yeah, right on. We did that for a couple of summers, I reckon, just
1: just mucking around like. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah he's a mad bastard. I first saw him in um in Brisbane actually. Yeah. Uh, Early in my career, and I was just like, "How is it that this guy does this?" Like, yeah. He'd, yeah. He'd like during his hat pitch, he would play this like sad piano music, and he'd have all the he'd get all the children out of the audience to like surround him. Yeah. <laughs> just,
2: like, yeah. Wasn't <laughs> that brilliant? This? Yeah. Yeah. That was all completely brilliant. Oh, such yeah. a genius. Yeah. So such a genius. I got his stuff out of bins, you know, because. Tony would go, oh, that's it, I've had enough, I'm stopping, and just chuck his, all his whole suitcase in a bin and walk away. Wow. And uh, I would then go get the stuff out of the bin and sort of stash it in my car or van or house or whatever, just knowing that there'd be a time when Tony would go, geez, wouldn't mind doing the shows? Has anyone got any stuff I can borrow? I'd go, Tony, I've, I've got your whole kit under my bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. I read. Remember- I'll tell you um, a story. Tony and I used to live together in a share house in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the nineties, late nineties. And uh, it was a two story. Hour. Yeah. Mid to late nineties. Yeah. It was a two story house. And um, so the bathroom was upstairs and the lounge room was downstairs and the kitchen was downstairs. And there's a bedroom downstairs and Tony's, um, practicing drums he had a drum kit downstairs and he's practicing drums it's loud really loud and uh and i was in the kitchen and then i could see fuck it's raining in the lounge room like it's actually seriously raining in the lounge room and so so i went up the stairs and i found the bathroom and i saw oh the bath's on all the, the taps are both on hardcore. It's fully overflowing and it's going down. It's going through the roof into the lounge room. Oh so I didn't turn the taps off. I just went back. There. I went back downstairs to Tony, pushed the door open to the drum room and I just shouted out Tony. And he stopped playing and go, Tony, your bath's ready. And his whole face just went, Oh my fucking God. And he goes, how ready? And I go, well, some of it's in the lounge room. And he's like, <laughs> Bolted up the stairs turned the thing off. And, yeah.
1: I think, yeah, I think I visited that house one day. Mitch and I drove to yeah. Melbourne because of the yeah. St. Kilda Festival. And, yeah, uh, right. And we rolled up, uh, I think uh, Shane had, had told us where he was staying at, at that place. And we rolled up. And I remember Tony saying, why don't you guys stay in Sydney and go to your own shitty festival?
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) that'd be right. Yeah.
2: But, you know, there was one time time in Sydney.
0: Yeah,
2: you go. I was going to say there was a time in Sydney I felt where people went, someone had written locals only on the back of the pitch. Do you remember that?
1: Uh, A circular key? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. That was a bit fun, a bit intimidating. I mean, that's crazy because, like, my first year at Circular Key, it was like an international mecca, you know? Like, yeah, wasn't it? Trevor Rooney was there and, and Mike um, yeah. was there and Sparky yeah. Mark. And just yeah. A- I wrote that, but, yeah, I do remember that. I was just thinking, yeah. I also remember, like, uh, like a turning point uh, – it might have been, uh, it might not have been, but you and me and in Edinburgh, right? And um, and we heard about the the kamikaze freak show. Oh yeah. And, and uh, we went to it, and you know he like would he would like pierce himself like two hundred times before he went on stage, go on stage with needles everywhere, and and I remember yeah, just yeah. walking up the street with you after the show, and um, and you said we're a bunch of lightweights.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that guy was truly hardcore, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. Yeah. and um, You know, since after that, like, you guys all started doing your, your hardcore sideshow stuff, and I thought back, I was like, maybe that's why, you know. Yeah, maybe well, both. The um, spark moment.
2: Yeah, both Frodo and Shane did um, seasons with the Kamikazes. Mm-hmm. But that first season that you're talking about, Amy Misbehave was in it. Yeah. That's, that's how she got, got her start in the game. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I just remember so – I saw that show quite a few times.
1: Maybe maybe was Nick Nicholas with us when we saw it? Yeah. Yeah, and, like I, some, and a guy called Rolex. He, he, uh, oh, he was, magician, Rolex.
2: Yeah. he was a great magician, Rolex. He was a great magician. But I remember after that show, Nick Nicholas, because we must have got him for free, Nick yeah. stood up, pulled out his wedge and just walked up to the front and just started going – when I, when I when I like things, I pay. And then peeling off 20s to all the people in the show. Yeah. Like you must have spent 100 quid on those pieces. Yeah. Just going, yep, when I see something I like, I pay for it. Just peeling yeah. off 20s. It was, it was inspirational.
1: Yeah.
2: But, but, yeah, so that show and the Jim Rose show, they both inspired me and Shane and Frodo to go, well, we can do all that stuff. But we don't have to be so macho and hardcore about it. Ah, So we don't have to be so dark and, you know, fucking gross and all that. So that's why we came up with The Happy Side Show. So Mm -hmm. we got all those those stunts presented in an uplifting, awesome, inspirational sort of way. And that's why that show had such a good life and was pretty successful because it was just... We just captured some
1: magic, you know? It was the first year yeah. of that show, like 99. To
2: yeah, and we did a show in the basement, uh, in some basement in Edinburgh. Oh, God. We didn't get paid. We did 30 shows. We just, they ripped us off completely. Right. At the end, we went to their offices. You know, where's the money? They go, we haven't got any money. So on the way out, we grabbed a whole heap of gazebos, <laughs> took them to Glastonbury had those gazebos for years actually the only thing we could steal was gazebos so that's what we had to take Uh. yeah we didn't get paid Uh. but I remember um, me and Shane were cruising around in Shane's van we were going just all these European pitches and uh, we ended up in Copenhagen and there's a big pitch down the bottom and we did some shows there and then we walked up the top through this little walking street to another pitch mm-hmm. i think i think sean was there actually bike boy
1: yeah, yeah. he used to be he, used um, to go there.
2: he took me and here. this yeah right and this quirky guy with a little sort of brown flat cap and a and a, a walking stick and a little suitcase came wandering up we must have been just sitting around drinking and smoking and stuff on, on the side of the street and that was frodo and frodo was working as a uh, table magician in doorways just doing just doing you know 10 20 people at a time sort of thing and uh, me and shane had nowhere to stay so he goes oh well you might as well just stay at my house Uh so we went we went and stayed at his place and every day we'd come in and work the pictures on the streets of copenhagen then at night we'd go back to his place and hang out and then when it was time to leave maybe a week or so later Frodo just goes, "I want to come with you." Yeah. So he he came with us, and we just basically had to go straight from Copenhagen to Edinburgh. And when we got to Edinburgh, it just opened his mind. He said to, he said to us, oh, I've never, I've never seen shows of this scale. I've yeah. never seen this many performers. I've never, oh my God! So this is what's possible."
1: I remember and- Frodo from that year. That was '98. Yeah, right. I took a picture of him. I've got a picture of him wearing that that little little suit and hat and that sitting on a suitcase. Yeah. And so that was his –
2: just sort of opened opened his mind Mm -hmm. to what's possible. And, uh, you know, well, up until last week, he was the star of a Vegas show. Now he's just – well, you know, all those shows in Vegas are cancelled at the moment.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but he's had a great run in Vegas.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that was cool, meeting him and just going, well, look what you can do with it, man. And his tennis racket show was the best tennis racket show ever. He's inspired a generation of, apart from you, of course. (laughs) But, but yeah, he did inspire a generation of them, didn't
1: he? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, And and so what about Lil? How did she fit in?
2: Me and Lil have been friends for a long time and and one summer, oh one I don't know. Anyway, she rang me up and she goes, Shep, I just lost my job and I've just lost the house I've been living in and I don't know what to do. And I went, Well, you can come to Glastonbury with me. It's a it's a bloody big life-changing event. Like Glastonbury is so awesome, you should come. Mm-hmm. So she goes, so she goes, Okay, I'll do that. And she bought the ticket, and she came to Glastonbury. And then her and Frodo met each other and fell instantly in love. Yeah. And, uh And that was that. So then we had a nice little gang for quite a few years. Yeah. The four of us. Yeah.
1: And where did the happy sideshow take you?
2: Far out. Almost more countries than being a street performer took me. Wow. Like, I don't know. It also it gave a little bit of, you know, when you're on the street, there's sort of a bit more of a rebel and a renegade and you just you try and make it happen you never ask permission you just do your thing if you get away with it it's great that sort of vibe but when you're working with a team of other people there's a bit more I don't know you get jobs in theaters and stuff and Mm -hmm. so you get put up at nice hotels and you get reviews in papers and stuff and I don't know it felt like my parents were proud of me when I was in the Happy Sideshow. <laughs> yeah, right. <Nice. laughs> you no.
1: Know?
2: Yeah. Like we, did show, we did four separate seasons in the Sydney Opera House. And my it folks. Was, was, house. I remember that. Yeah. They were so proud of me when I was doing that, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So it was good for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't know. We, one summer we did a tour that went from Spain to Sweden. And I don't know. How many countries did we did on the way, and then heaps of Asian stuff as well. It's hard to know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, it was yeah. a
1: few
2: years, hey. Like, and then, yeah, then and why did it come to an end? It's pretty much five, five years, and I suppose everyone would have different opinions of, of you know, there's you know always four or five versions of the truth. Well, so it's, it's hard for pain, me, you
1: know? Yeah,
2: it's hard for me to know exactly because my memory. Yeah, and all that, but I think what I put it down to is being overworked. Mm-hmm. I think our management team didn't give us enough time to recover. Yeah. They were they were young. We, the management team were young. They were, we were making them a lot of money, and uh, and they killed the golden goose just by working us too hard. Right, right, right. That's what I reckon happened. Because in the end, there was a time at the end where we just weren't friends. I mean, don't get, don't get me wrong, we're all really close again now. But at the end of that, you just got to spend some time apart because, you know, you just, you're cutting costs and spending shitloads loads of time in vans and driving around everywhere and not, you know. So, yeah, they just work just too hard. When you're working for yourself, you can take as much time off as you want. When you're yeah. working for someone else and they've booked the thing and the posters are printed and the bloody, it's all that, you just got to do it
1: you got to do it, yeah, responsibility. is yeah. the There's no responsibility on the street. If you don't want to go to the pitch that day, you don't go. That's you right. You need a week yeah. off, you know?
2: Yeah. I've been I've been trying to learn to surf, out. Oh, and, really? Um, yeah, well, what what We're it's really
1: a good spot for it.
2: Yeah, because I've never surfed, right? And so I've got this surfboard in the shed there, and what it reminded me of is when you getting back into doing shows, and you haven't done shows for a while,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you go to, on the first day, you pack all your stuff in the car, and you go to the pitch, and then you go, oh, I'll leave the stuff in the car, and I'll just have a look at the pitch. Oh, just, see, just have a bit of a look. And you have a look, and then you decide it's no good, and you go home. And then the <laughs> next, day, next day, you drive in again, you get your stuff, and you actually get it out of the car, and you take it to the pitch. And you have a look, and you go, oh, yeah, it's just not – uh, no, nah, not today. And then you take your stuff back and put it in. And then on the third day, you drive there, you take your stuff, you get it to the pitch, and you actually do it. And yeah. that's what that's what the last three days have been for me. Right. First day, I went and had a look, didn't do anything. Second day, had a look, took the board out of the car, sat on the beach for a while. And then today, went there, took the board out, and actually went out into the waves for a little while. Have
1: you done any so, other kind of board sport? No, no, Mm. I haven't, and I'm 51. But don't worry, I'll I'll get there. Dude, I mean, if you're gonna do something like that's that's awesome. It's really good for fitness, and like you can't unless you're surfing big waves with a lot of rocks, you're not gonna get hurt as much as you would if you were learning to say skateboard or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: the water's soft, and at the pass, at the pass, it's like the perfect learner's beach. The -hmm. waves just. They just go parallel to the shore. They just cruise along that. You don't have to fight any waves to get back out. You can just walk along the shore
1: and start again.
2: So it's pretty perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. I surfed, uh, I started when I was probably 13 and surfed all the way up till I left Australia pretty much. Mm. Yeah.
2: But you'd be a snowboarder now, wouldn't you?
1: I do sometimes. Yeah. It's been a couple of years, though. But one of my mates um, who lives about an hour away, he uh, called me up in September and was like, hey, do you want to go for a surf? And I was like, yeah, you found a beach? like So, so there's a beach <laughs> up in New Hampshire. I guess there's a bunch of them where people surf, but I just never really was interested because, you know what? The Atlantic Ocean is freezing. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. Like, we found this place that rented boards and, and like steamer wetsuits and... Uh, and we went surfing and, and like what you're saying, like, I was like, oh, this is the, the first day I went up there. I was a bit scared. I was like, oh, no. The waves were big and crashing and whatever. I was like, I've surfed bigger waves than this. Like, it's it's fine. I'll go out. And it was tough to even get out. And then like the next day I went back up and uh, just got up, surfed. I was like, ah, so easy. Yeah. <laughs> still
2: do it. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, so I'm definitely gonna do that more. Cause it's it's just a, such a nice like relaxing thing to do, even though it's like a little bit strenuous. Um, and it's a workout. It's so chill yeah. when you're out there just waiting for a wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to do more of it. She's just just getting it the hang of it. Me of um of actually sitting on a pitch and waiting for a show.
2: Yeah. waiting
1: yeah. For that that. So you're looking around, you're waiting to see, like, oh, it's picking up, it's picking up. but people walking fast? They're walking slow. It's, it's just like looking for the, waiting for that hump to come in, the, in the surf. Hey,
2: um, I'll tell you something else about mm-hmm. the, the first time I went to Edinburgh.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I um was leaving a venue late at night, and I was a bit paranoid. You know, just, I'm in a new place. I don't know quite exactly where I'm going. Maybe I'm – yeah, anyway. So I'm a bit paranoid and I'm walking and it's misty and it's dark and it's Edinburgh and it's quiet. And then I can hear this noise. It's going – And I'm going, oh, my God, what is that? It's getting closer. And it's, like, scary. And Mm -hmm. I'm walking towards a corner, walking towards a corner, and the noise is getting louder and louder and louder. And then at the corner there's Rumple. In his spring shoes. <laughs> um. <laughs> and, that, and that was the noise. And he goes, oh, crikey, Shep, oh, I'm a little bit lost. Do you know where we are?
1: <laughs> oh, man, yeah. what a character. Yeah. You know where Rumple is these days? I heard he lives in the US.
2: No, I think he's in
1: Melbourne. Oh, okay.
2: I wrote to him a little while ago. I don't think he's overly well. But he's in he's in Melbourne doing his thing, yeah.
1: So yeah. Um, the happy sideshow. Were you still doing street shows, or you started again after that, or how did that? No,
2: no, no, we did. Um, we did a lot of street shows, all three of us, because mm. that's that's um, what we'd use to finance. Um, I don't know, building bigger props or getting bigger posters or whatever we had to do next. So it was hard because especially in Edinburgh, we'd be on late at night. I don't know, because it's a freak show. They do it at 11 or 11.45 or something like that. And then after that, you know, you've got a few hundred people in the theatre and you're hyped up and so you've got to get all that energy out Mm -hmm. and you get all that energy out and then it's the draw. So I was always like, right, if I can just get an early show, do that, then... Okay. And I can go home and sleep through the day,
1: mm.
2: get up at night time. So, yeah, all three of us, me, Shane and Frodo, used to do solo shows and and the Happy Side show every Edinburgh,
1: I don't know, maybe for four or five Edinburghs in a row. Wow. Um, this must have been tiring for sure every day. So, so
2: tiring. But you know what it's like when you're doing a run. You just, you just got to grind the shows out because at the end of it, the wedge is – it's Just every day adds up, you know, and then you can relax.
1: And you got all three of you like advertising the uh, the the happy side, side shows. show
2: that used to work so well. Because yeah, if you like this, you'll love what we do in the indoor show. It's like you never had to hand out a flyer that yeah. people didn't didn't want. They'd actually mob they'd mob you
1: for flyers.
2: Yeah.
1: So it just worked. It worked really well for us. And uh, was that possible in other cities that you went to, to do street shows and advertise? In Adelaide a bit. Yeah. but That's a good question. But it's,
2: no, Edinburgh was the real jewel in the crown for that. Mm-hmm. Other other festivals, um, the street was just not, not as good in a lot of places.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: hard to yeah. Um, Yeah, it just wasn't as awesome as edinburgh and then yeah in answer to that no man it wasn't no (laughs) (laughs) no not not really no not at all
1: you guys were doing like comedy festivals and 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 big events all over the world right
2: yeah yeah but they don't really have a street street component Mm -hmm. yeah those places don't have a street component and um a lot of them when you're not on, see. Sometimes we just would get wages. They just go, "All right, do this thing, and we'll give you this much money at the end of it." You don't need to go out and hand out flyers. Yeah. You're already set. Yeah.
1: It's
2: a luck It's a luxury. It's really good. It's fantastic.
1: And um, and once that once that uh, was done and dusted, uh, were you back on the street, or like, were you back in Australia? Like, what happened after that? I'd I say I um last soirée. Well, luckily.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what did happen? It was about 2005 that show finished. I'd say I was in Melbourne just back doing, you know, four or five shows a week, mm-hmm. just uh, living the good life. Because yeah. <laughs> they'd opened Federation Square by that time, and that was a really good pitch. In fact, Lucky Rich was part of the – he used to hang out with the architects that designed Federation Square. Yeah. And he – yeah, and he and he said to him, "Why don't you put some tiered steps in there with sort of like an amphitheater-style thing at yeah. the bottom?" So it just he was in their ears, and they just listened. And uh, it's one of the it's when it works really well when there's nothing else on there and there's good clear sight lines for a couple of hundred meters. Mm. It's a, one of the best pitches ever, I reckon.
1: Yeah, it's uh, one of the one of the Australian pitches that I've never tried actually, because every yeah, time well, I went to Melbourne was. Uh... I've done, you know, St Kilda, I've done South Bank, uh, Bourke Street, um, but, yeah, never, I never had the chance or, or the opportunity to do Fed Square. Yeah,
2: well, you know what it's like now, Alf. Everything's changing. It's like it's a public space managed by a private corporation. Mm-hmm. You know what it's like. They're all the same, same now. Fox. So,
1: Hey? Same as Boston.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not saying there's audition processes, but it's not all that easy to just rock up and do a show. Mm-hmm. There's always boxes to tick and people to keep happy, and
1: bureaucracy,
2: yeah, hey, Bure- bureaucracy. Yeah, heaps of it.
1: Yeah, heaps of yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's the same here, man. There's a, there's an audition, there's a a background check. Uh, make sure you've got to have the insurance and, uh, and then you got to sign that form that says, you know, if you get injured, they're not responsible. What about huh?
2: working, with, working with children check? Do you have to have that?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. A, a Cory and a Sorry. I don't know, it's a, a criminal records check and a you know, sexual predator background check, whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty full on, but it's yeah. rare that you find a city where you don't have to do that now for street Yeah, right. yeah. I can only yeah. think of a, a hand. Yeah, yeah,
2: I've been out to little country towns, mm-hmm. um, you know, to do their festivals, and um, it's sort of like going back to the 90s. Yeah, they have, there's people out there that haven't seen everything.
1: Yeah. So they, so
2: they still really love it. Um, and last last year, I got flown to this place way up in Queensland. And I had to do my old street show that I've been doing for 25 years or something. Mm. And uh, and someone walked through uh, on their phone, and I just grabbed her phone and talked to the person on the other end. As you did. Told, her that, told the person on the other end, no, oh, she's watching a really good show. She's just going to be sitting down here on the right-hand side and all that. And, just, uh, and to prove I'm not a psycho, the whole crowd's going to say goodbye. And the whole crowd said goodbye, and I just sort of forgot about it and kept doing my thing. Yeah. And the next day I get a phone call from the organiser. This was in 2019. I get a phone call the next day, and he goes, Shep, what are you doing, Australia Day, twenty twenty? And I go, I don't know, man. It's a year away. And he goes, Well, you're booked. That thing you did with the phone—that's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I, I was, <laughs> I was going, it's just a generic old thing. And, and, he, and yeah, right. but I didn't say that. I didn't say that to him, but I was going, Yes, I found people that haven't seen everything.
1: Yeah. These- so you started. Uh, you started a new show after that, right? Uh, the Dirty Brothers, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. That. That got me to go to the National Theatre of London. That actually got some respect, that show. Yeah. It was another thing that my parents could come and see, (laughs) (laughs)
1: And uh, Tell me about that show. It was much different to the Happy Side show.
2: Oh, yeah. It was – well, part of the thing was, Al, I just had been talking on stage, hosting, 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 hosting for so long. I just wanted to test myself and be quiet. Mm -hmm. So – I said to my best mate, Paddy, who was in the original thing that I was in in the 80s, the juggling thing that I was in in the 80s, oh. I said to him, I want to make a sideshow type show that's silent and theatrical.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and he goes, okay, leave it with me. And, and I went away to Europe and did a summit tour, came back, and Paddy had all these ideas of how to put sideshow stunts into beautiful Visual, poetic spaces,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and that became the backbone of the dark party. The and
1: dark
2: party. yeah, and that show, because it was silent, it sort of transcended language, and it was quite emotional. Mm-hmm. And um. And in Spain and Portugal, they've got a really um, long tradition of sad clown. Mm-hmm. And and they just embraced that show. We had a Spanish yeah. producer. We went there, I don't know how many years in a row, and we'd do big festivals. And and there'd be like, we'd go on at one o'clock at night, and there'd be a thousand people waiting for us and stuff. And wow. it was just wow. sideshow rock and roll. It was really special. And in,
1: uh, uh, in Spain, they, the, the, the shows don't start till like 10 o'clock. You know, it's right. always, there's always yeah, a late yeah. night vibe in Spain. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And um it's one of I don't have many regrets but one of them is that the producer of that show after we'd done I don't know three or four seasons there in a row the last summer he just took the money. He he didn't pay us. He just took the money and and left and declared bankruptcy. And he, we weren't the only company he ripped off. He ripped off, I don't know, quite a few other companies. Right. And he just took the money. And he was a, he was a brave, interesting producer who was prepared to take risks. That's why he took the show.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But we never found another producer for, for that show.
1: Right, right.
2: So, so, so that, after that, that, yeah, it would just get, you know one or two gigs a year here and there from people who'd heard about it and stuff, but it had no one actively pushing it anymore.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. And now we do probably one gig a year in Japan called Sadistic Circus, and it's awesome. It's like a – it's a boxing ring, so a square
1: Mm
2: -hmm. set in a boxing arena. Yeah. So so there's – I don't know. I I don't know maybe 1,000 people or more or on all sides of you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's big screens. So even the people right at the back react like they're in the front row. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
2: you get flown in Japan. You get put up there. You get a couple of days to practice it in the new space. And then there's, the, you know, they're so precise, the Japanese. They've got, you know, quite a few people filming it, and, and the sound cues are all absolutely perfect. And Sadistic Circus is um, – it's like a, an upmarket kink fest, you know. Mm. So no photo, no photos are allowed to be taken in the venue by punters, you know. All the um, bondage people come there, all dressed up in their gear and everything. And it's a, yeah, it's a great, it's a great gig. And,
1: and so uh, in, your, um, in your experience in like doing, you know, the happy Side Show and the dark party and just other sideshow stuff. Have you ever come across or ever had yourself like any, like crazy injuries from doing that stuff?
2: In Common Garden one day I had, I was lying on the nails and I had some volunteer out. She didn't speak all that great English Mm -hmm. and the sun sun was shining quite a lot. I'm lying on the nails and I've talked her through the whole process Mm -hmm. and it goes three, two, one drop and on the word one I, I would always just tense my abs to help absorb the impact in the plate smash and so I've got the whole crowd ready and we all go three but I had my eyes closed because it was too sunny right. and on the word on the word three she dropped the ball right. and I'm not tense at all yeah. so it's like it's like being punched in the guts by I, uh, I don't know, 12-pound bowling ball, <laughs> bang, I just wasn't ready for it, and smash, and it hurt, man. I, I rolled off the nails like I was actually punched in the guts, hardcore. Yeah. The people are all laughing their heads off. <laughs> I, <get laughs> I, don't, I don't have any more plates. I can't. I, can't. Oh, I just have to stand up and put my hat out, and people are just laughing a la- lot. And I was going, oh, man, if I could fake that, that's actually really funny. you yeah. know. <laughs> I'll tell you one, though. When I was doing the nails, you know the Krusty Demon show? Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. You know those motorbike guys? They used to yeah, do motorbikes and backflips and all that. Yeah, yeah. I think it morphed into the Nitro Circus, so that's the competition of it anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, I was doing the Krusty Demon show in a – big sort of stadium thing and um, and they need you to fill just a few minutes while they change the length of the jumps they, mm-hmm. they move the they move the kicker ramps they jump off and uh, one of the things was I'd lie on a bed of nails with a big board on top of me a guy would ride up uh, and do a massive burnout and get heaps of smoke going yeah and then just sort of roll off again, and that's that. And the big thing was you have to roll off. Do not let the clutch out and fly off forwards. Because right. you've got you to remember there's a guy under here on a bed of nails hold, holding that board down.
1: Yeah.
2: And it worked every time until Seth Enslow, who's the big star of the Krusty Demons, the right. guy who owns he owns it all and he started it all, and he came along. And it's like maybe the beginning or the end of the tour. It's the it's the big one, and uh, and we're doing that stunt, and it's working, 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 working. And he's on a big Harley, and suddenly he wow. drops the drops the clutch, the gear takes, and he and he shoots off that way. Oh. And I'm holding on the board, and the board just drags me down the nails, oh. like it dragged me down the nails, so that I actually had I don't know. Maybe a hundred cuts between two and four to five inches long in my back. In yeah. that. And, oh man. And uh, uh, afterwards, the people that booked me were so angry with him that they took me to him to sort of get him to apologize. Yeah, right. um, but he's like a. Um, He's like a big name and a coat yeah, yeah.
1: fiend.
2: Yeah, and they and they go, this is Shep. He's the guy under the thing that you did the when you did, show show him your back, Shep. And I showed him my back. And these guys, they break their legs and their arms and they break yeah. this shit all the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, and they're going, oh, we were just hoping you could say sorry. And um, the per- the person that booked me, his name was Ben. Seth Inslow just put his hand out like that, bang, and got him around the neck and just went, I don't, say, I don't say no to anybody. Whose show is this? It's my fucking show. Just sort of dropped him and that was that. We had to leave. And I don't think I really got that gig again. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ask me about injuries. I was on a – oh, me and Shane were doing the 110th anniversary of Harley Davidson and I had to lie on a bed of nails and Shane had to ride a Harley over the top of me. Mm-hmm. and the ramps we had were quite steep and uh and Shane goes chef there's not enough clearance on the bike we usually do it on a on a dirt bike, right, dirt, right. bike dirt bike will make that easy but mm-hmm. the Harley's so long it actually it won't make it across yeah and I'm yeah. going Shane we're in the, we're in the show man we just we just have to do it yeah. and he's going, he's going we can't do it chef and I'm going no no just try man just go fast and try and so he did he went fast and he tried and he made it up and then the bike came down bang on top of oh shit but the um, the the car the bike had been running for a while and the exhaust hot they, they were really hot yeah and suddenly there's exhaust pipes on me like that and the and the nails are under me and it's like and I'm trying to get out you know You know, sucking my gut in as hard as I can, trying to scrape out, scrape out of this scenario. And then Shane's there, just sort of dragging me out from underneath it, and the bikes collapse between the ramps. And and we get out, and we just sort of both take this half-assed bow. Yeah. And leave. We just leave the bike, just sort of on the floor and these ramps. And then we're just in the room, and I've got these two big burns across my gut, and it's like. We just got to get out of here. That was so embarrassing and so fucked. We cannot stay here any longer, and we just packed our shit and left. Wow, That's no joke, huh? <laughs> no, it's
1: no joke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's no joke. Yeah. But, you know, streets, no, streets, no joke either. Yeah. I was in yeah. Burke Street, New Year's Eve, finishing a really big New Year's Eve show. And I've got my both hands on my thing like that. It's an amphitheater style pitch, so it's it's money that I would like to spend on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, suddenly, there's a guy's hand on me. He's got me really tight round there, and he goes, "Give me all your fucking money." And uh, and I look down, and there's a knife at my guts. He's he's got one hand on on there, and the other hand, a knife on my guts. And my first thought was that knife's so big it can go through me. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. And then I just sort of pulled this way and he still had me and he had me quite tight. And then before I knew really what happened, four guys out of the audience jumped on him. Yeah. And they jumped on yeah, and Yeah. And suddenly, like, you know, you're protected by your crowd. And suddenly they had him on the ground. And because it was New Year's Eve, about two seconds later, two policemen walked around the corner mm-hmm. and other people went, oh, this guy's just threatened a guy with a knife and all that. And then suddenly, like, there's more police, there's a paddy wagon. and, and Your show is gone to shit all of a sudden. Yeah, but luckily I was collecting the cash at that point. But all I wanted to do was leave, but I couldn't leave. And they said, you have to come to the station and make a statement. Yeah. And I go... It's New Year's Eve. The guy's just desperate. Let's give him a break. Let's not press any charges. Yeah. And they and they went. The guy's dangerous. If you're not pressing the charges, we will. Mm. You have to. You have to come to the station.
1: <laughs> so
2: oh, yeah. so I, did, I had to go and sit in the station for hours to give my statement for this poor. Like he was just desperate you know, junkies are desperate, and the guy was having a hard time, and it's just, so the street's hardcore too, Al, you know, like.
1: It is, mate, yeah, I have actually had many an encounter on the street that has led me to um, be studied in jiu-jitsu for eight, over eight years now, I've been yeah. training in jiu-jitsu just for that reason, just because yeah. I've been, like, fronted and accosted and been in fights, you know, yeah. And yeah, it's, scary, you what, isn't it? it's it's mostly Australia. Like uh, yes. I've had yeah. one or two in Boston, one or two in in uh, yeah. y- Europe, but yeah, it's mostly been Australia where people, have, you know, uh, try yeah. to hurt me or fight yeah. me at my show.
2: Is it mostly other performers?
1: No, no, definitely not.
2: <laughs> definitely no, I'm
1: not performers. No, no, just random assholes, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, yeah. There's there's too many people with something to prove in Australia. Yeah, big time. The macho That's thing. And you've got the crowd. They just want to be the big man in front of the crowd, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah. Can I tell you a story about Lucky in that, in Amsterdam? No, tell me. He had a, he had a great show going on, and, um, and these guys pushed through the edge, and they sort of swaggered through the show. And Lucky just sort of dropped in behind them and sort of mimicked their walking style. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of them turned around and went – he sort of shaped, shaped up to him. Like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? You know, shaped up to him like this. And Lucky goes, oh, yes. Do you want to fight me? I love fighting. I'm actually yeah. a fighter, man. I, I love it. I, I am so into fighting you. Can you just stand over there? I'll finish this show. And then it's on, man. Yeah. And the guy goes, well, okay then. <laughs> and so him and he- him and his mates just stayed and watched the show. And at the end, they didn't want to fight him anymore.
1: Yeah, I bet.
2: Just won yeah. him over with charm, you know? Yeah, but just yeah, that, Just that thing of meeting it, just meeting it face on going, yeah, you want to do this? I would love to do
1: it. Just let me finish the show first. Yeah, yeah. I was astounded. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, you know, I haven't. Um, the only time I've had to uh, use my skill um, was someone trying to take money out of my bucket once um at Faneuil hall down in boston and uh and yeah it was a matter of um grabbing him in one of my you know jiu positions and threatening him to put him to sleep and i was like you, yeah, gotta, right. let go you gotta let go of the money or you're gonna go to sleep and he's like what and i and i tightened up a bit and he goes oh, okay he let go of the money yeah wow
2: I used to just get my knuckle sort of like that, the middle knuckle just pushed out a little bit, because oh, yeah. I'd was, i be standing on the stepladder, so a little bit higher than them all, and uh, I did it a couple of times, actually, mainly to kids, just on the top of the head, just crack, <laughs> 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 and they just go, ow, and they drop it straight away. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. And uh, and you, um, you started a sideshow festival, is that right?
2: I did, yeah. I mean, I loved doing that. It was so great. I had people from all over the world come to Ballarat. I put it in Ballarat because I wanted Sideshow to be cold. Circus, I thought, that has hot weather festivals. Mm -hmm. But let's do a Sideshow festival and let's make it like, you know, the women wear fur and we all drink gin and whiskey and it's indoors. Mm -hmm. People indoors. And it went so well. Um, the first year I got sponsorship from Hendrix Gin. Awesome. And, uh Yeah, it was really awesome. Um, yeah, I had Hover from Norway, the guy who basically um, – he was called the Headmaster. He inspired Frodo a lot when Frodo was beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first year I had Lizardman as well um, yeah. from Austin. Um, and the next time round, I had uh, Princess Tweedle Needle from Germany, so a whole, lot of, a whole lot of sideshow stars. The second time round, I had the Monsters of Schlock you know, those guys,
1: yeah, for real,
2: out of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was. I thought to myself, if you just call it the World Sideshow Festival, it will grow into the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really working, but um, the funding I don't have the amount of capital I need to be able to keep it going. And um, after the second one, we lost quite a bit of money. And um, Simi, my wife, she said to me, um, that was a pretty expensive party. Mm -hmm. And it was. It was a really great party with awesome people from all over the world. But I can't do it with my own money anymore. If I ever do it again, it's got to be with other people's money.
1: Some good funding, yeah, sponsorship.
2: No, be some good funding or some good sponsorship,
1: yeah. Yeah, and um, and when did you decide? Uh, well, I mean, you, you 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 haven't been street performing for a while, right? And you have moved away from the city. Isn't that amazing? I actually do bubble shows. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about Dr. Hubble. Isn't that amazing?
2: Like, yeah. what a full circle that is—from swinging a car battery off my nipples to to making bubbles for children is a career path that I could have never predicted in my wildest right.
1: dreams.
2: Yeah. And so I think having a kid just made me go this sideshow lifestyle it's um it's pretty hedonistic and it's probably not sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. So so just grow up a little bit. So so the bubble show really is my idea of a day job it's i just go and make bubbles in the daytime and get home in the the afternoon and and be a good dad yeah so yeah yeah, that's basically the motivation for it is to just be a good dad
1: yeah it was interesting learning you don't still get out there and do uh, your old show anymore
2: yeah a couple of times a year i cherry pick you know i don't ever want to do it if it's hard I just cherry pick the good ones. So if there's good money and a nice place to stay, I'll go and do it. Yeah. But I on, but I only get asked probably twice a year. Last year I did it twice, the year before twice.
1: Yeah. It's,
2: it, it's it's great, though, Al, because it's all still 100% in there. Yeah, of course. You know, when you do something 300 times a year for bloody 10, 20 years, or however long it is, it just stays in your bones, and you just know yeah. it. Yeah, so, cool. I just walk out there with the suitcase, start cracking a whip, and then suddenly, suddenly it's all just coming back and people are laughing. And yeah, so it's all still there. And I love it. I just love it. But I can't ever see myself doing unsolicited busking shows. No. Maybe, maybe I could, like in the perfect environment. Right. So, I was at Moomba at the weekend, it's a big Melbourne. Oh, a couple of weeks ago, Big Melbourne yeah. Festival. Yeah. And, All right. and uh, I did my bubble show there, got paid a nice wedge to do the bubbles. And then afterwards, I walked around and uh, and saw Ruben dot, dot, dot mm-hmm. and Eric the Red. They were working a pitch just south of South Bank under a tree, oh, south of Fed Square under a tree, and it catches the Moomba crowd. And for one weekend a year... It's a brilliant pitch,
1: yeah.
2: And I was and I was going, oh, geez, wish I had brought my street gear. I would have a crack at this, you know. All right. All right. And then, just as I was thinking it, Fed Square management came down with the bloody headset and uh, yeah. the walkie-talkie and the clipboard and stuff, going, "Sorry, fellas, I'm really sorry to do this, but the City of Melbourne said you're causing an obstruction over there, and yeah. no amount of talking was going to stop them mm-hmm. from." Stopping the shows, and so the sh- shows got stopped. And at that point, I went, jeez, I'm glad I'm not relying on this anymore."
1: Yeah, so much regulation out there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's I've taken a step back, you know, in the last couple of years, you know, it's I probably I, I still do maybe uh, you know, one or zero weekends a month of of street shows. <laughs> Uh, one or you know, one or zero. <laughs> one or zero. Yeah, it's, it's either I'm book, completely booked or I've got one weekend free to do street shows, and uh, yeah. which is nice for me. I love Boston and I love the pitch in Boston. Um, and uh, so to be honest, it's more it's more my home pitch now than Sydney ever was because I've yeah. worked it. I've worked it for longer, you know.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you feel a little obligation to keep working it? so that it stays open
1: um i don't think so because it's not just me there's there's always there's a good crew down there um oh, I see. yeah yeah, oh. yeah. and uh, it's always it's a you know as you know it's a it's a bit of a famous pitch and yeah. um people still want to come through and do shows here and so it's, right. it's it's the problem with with boston is it's a short season you know it's it's like six there's like six good months and then Rest of the time yeah. is too cold, bar a, a freakish weekend of warm weather. Yeah, you've got to travel um, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So it 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 does sustain a good roster of acts here, um, but it's all people that have moved here because of it. Like I moved here oh, because yeah, of Yeah, right. right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I, I, if we were all just doing street shows, like it wouldn't sustain us. Like we all do other things as well. You know?
2: Yeah, yeah. So you're saying you do three out of four weekends doing
1: gigs? Yeah, yeah. Pretty oh, much. That's great, Al. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. What sort of gigs? Um, I work a lot in tattoo conventions now. Oh, do you? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, just kind of a stroke of luck, actually. Someone saw me at Faneuil Hall street performing and was like, oh, I want to get this guy to come to our convention. And yeah. that year, I go, but then they asked me again the next year and I was okay, yeah, I can go. And I went and did a show, did a couple of shows over the weekend. Someone who ran a, a convention uh, in another place uh, saw me and was like, dude, that was amazing. Uh, can you come to my convention? Cool. And then yeah. at that convention, I met someone who ran like 10 conventions. And yeah. he would come to his thing. And that's just kind of blew up from there, you know. And yeah. me coming in as a street performer, um, doing what I do, is, is just a kind of a breath of fresh air sometimes, you know.
2: Yeah, well, see, you can add theatricality and gags to it. And yeah. that that makes a difference because you get a lot of people going, oh, I can bang a nail up my nose. But that's, it's not really, a, it's not a show. Right. You know, yeah, the yeah, show is much more than the stunt. Yeah, yeah. In so, uh, fact, I've been working this out recently because having done so many different things through my career, I reckon the tricks aren't really overly important at all. Mm-hmm. It's your relationship with the audience that's the most important thing. It's you. It's you, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how you make the people feel, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, so for uh, me yeah. like one of the first lessons, you know, I think JP was like, it doesn't matter what you do, it's it's you. The it's yeah, that's right. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Well you said it out. You said it
2: years ago. I was I was trying to wind you up a little bit because you'd just done this big show and I went, um Al, you know, no matter what happens, you've got to remember you're just a monkey on a stick. And you <laughs> and you said to me, No, Chef, I'm a smile on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> it's true,
1: mate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to smile. That's like that's the number one rule in street theatre. You can get away with yep. anything if you smile. Yeah, you're right,
2: yeah. Pepe had the cheekiest grin of all. He could get yeah. away with anything with that grin of his. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so beautifully cheeky.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, happy that I, I got to see Pepe, you know, in the '90s and the 2000s in Edinburgh, and that yeah. just we all went to, you know. Yeah, me
2: too. Have what you
1: been in touch with him at all?
2: No. Um, no. Someone is looking to do an interview with him, and someone else wrote, "Just go to Covent Garden; he'll be around the back of the pitch." Yeah, but he ain't what he used to be. No,
1: that's it. Yeah. yeah. Same, yeah, exactly. you know, it's, uh, drugs and alcohol are definitely a, a a tough thing for a lot of performers. And
2: well, it's a trap in our game when you don't really have a boss, and you don't have to go to work if you don't want. And you can have a joint at ten a.m. or a beer at ten a.m. If you you can do whatever you want. You can afford and, to. Yeah, you can afford to, and no one's regulating. You know, no one's saying don't. Um. Yeah, so it's a real trap, and uh, I feel really sorry for that Pe- because I think my fa- family, like my daughter and my wife, really sort of saved me from
1: from that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. I bet. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. I saw, it. I saw it early. I saw it, like, with the, the pitch in Sydney. I saw it in Edinburgh. I was getting shows because people were too fucked up to be able to do their spot. <laughs> You know, yeah I mean, right yeah uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drink anymore uh and actually I quit smoking uh weed in Edinburgh that year that 98 yeah wow great why because I lost my my kit yeah do you remember that yeah yeah I, I was I yeah. didn't have any to stay so JP said don't worry about it just come to Edinburgh you can stay like in my closet or in my van or whatever and uh So I went to Edinburgh and I was staying in JP's van and one night we were at JP's apartment and we were just like, you know, smoking bongs and whatever. And I got so high that I went back to the van with my props and I only had the key to the front door. So I had to put my props at the back door, climb in the front door, climb through, open the back door, pull my props in, right? So that night I climbed in the front door, got on the bed, (sighs) fell asleep. And I, and the next day my props were gone and I was oh like my. Oh my, that day I was like I'm never ever smoking weed ever again.
0: Yeah I'm never right.
1: Weed ever again you know. Because <laughs> it's you too get important. The back? No, yeah. I never got you did back. it. Right. Yeah. Um, Sparky Mark um, rented me his machetes. <laughs> <laughs> Of course he did. He rented me his machetes, so, so I was able to do shows with a pair of, with a set of machetes until I went to the juggling shop and bought some torches, and, and I had a weed whacker in my show, and, you know, I went and bought a weed whacker, but I finally, you know, I got it all back yeah. after a couple of months, but no, I didn't get that actual kit back.
2: Yeah, wow. Well, that was very
1: kind of, kind of Mark to rent you some very props, kind of Mark to rent me his <laughs> own machetes. It's fantastic. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Um, so for Shep now, it's uh, you're living around Byron Bay. You learn to surf. You've got a bubble show, and um, and you know, nothing's going on right now. So that that's that's your uh, your plan right now is just to learn to surf and chill until the shows start happening again. Yeah.
2: Well, I want to just yeah. You know, like I said, I just want to be. Like a good dad, not let any of the stress of this uh, virus thing go through to my kid. Mm-hmm. Be a good dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's Just here, here, I am in paradise. Just got to pass the time away until uh, until the shows kick in again. But there's no greater place to be. Like it's just literally paradise.
1: Do you have um, Do you have any thoughts on on if this will change the way shows are in the future?
2: Wow, I
1: haven't thought about that yet. I reckon
2: people will be craving some sort of normality after this. Mm-hmm. They'll be they'll be dying to get back out and see things again. You know, because I don't know about where you are, but all the pubs and clubs here are closed. Right. All the cin- all the cinemas are closed. Everything's closed. Yeah. So, right. you know, I reckon small businesses might have trouble getting back on their feet. But I reckon shows and entertainment will just come back with a bigger vengeance. It'll be back a bit
1: hardcore, straight even, away. I think busking will even be maybe one of the first things. Yeah, exactly. Getting people to yeah. go to a venue and pay a ticket to sit with a bunch of people inside mm-hmm. might still not be on their radar for a while. But yes. just being outside and witnessing a show...
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah, that can work. Yeah, and you... Um, in a little Facebook thread a little while ago, I was going, oh, I don't know what to do. And you went, the street's just where you left it, Shep. And, uh, it and that, made me, that made me think, yeah, you're right, it is. And there's a beautiful park here. And uh, I actually wouldn't mind getting out into that park at some right. point, just I'd playing love to with people, doing the thing. You'd be surprised
1: how quickly, you know, you, you, you say you only do your, your street show a couple times a year, but like, it's still it's fun, man. Like I do all these yeah. these gigs yeah. and shows and conventions and whatever, but since I do a street show, I'm like, ah, oh,
2: it's fun, yeah. Yeah, good thinking. Yeah, I need to be reminded of that actually, because yeah, those years were just the greatest.
1: So yeah, I you're I right. You uh, you come to you come to your, your fear that you're not you won't be as good as you were before. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's audience, always that. Isn't never it? saw you before, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, they don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, I think it's been proven that you can be quite shit, and they'll still like you. Yeah, that's been <laughs> <great>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. yeah. That
1: an awesome ship.
2: Yeah, hasn't it? It's been great. Yeah, thanks for um, the chat. It's been really nice. Uh, I want to say thanks to. Um, all the people involved in this project because, you know, it feels like we're spread out and we're quite disparate around the whole world, Mm. except you and the team behind this are bringing us all together. And you don't know how many people listen to these, Al, but everybody's listening to them. And it it is just keeping us, keep it's keeping our community together. And I want to say a special thanks to everyone involved
1: no worries mate it's, it's like uh, it's like being at the back
2: of the pitch yeah isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you for- thanks to Shep for being part of the project and his kind words at the end I really do hope this podcast can bring us together in some way during these strange times if you're a regular listener thanks you know this podcast is a labor of love but sponsorship helped to keep it going and allows us to release episodes more frequently so if you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast or know someone who would contact me at magic at com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button, or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com forward slash busker stories. Thanks in advance for supporting the project and helping keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Where you can see a video version of this interview. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a five-star review. It'll help get the podcast noticed, and we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like someone to be interviewed or feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me and let me know. We're doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can. It's up to you to help fill in the gaps. So on behalf of myself, Al Miller, who captured the interview, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian.